Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. As some of you might know, we've been actually taking our sweet time, if you would, through 1 Corinthians 10. It, it matters greatly. That's in part why we have been taking our time through this section. And if you don't have a Bible, page 811 in the church Bibles is where you would need to turn. Page 811, and you'll see it there. We're just going to read verse 13 in just a moment. While you're turning there, just a few things. If we haven't met as of yet and you'd like to, I would be happy to do that when our time is done. Also, if you have a question about anything that was said or about Jesus Christ, then again, I'd be happy to try to answer those questions. And I haven't formally given you a thank you to all the kind things that many of you did over this um, Pastor Appreciation weeks and months. So I want to tell you thank you for all the cards and texts and emails and um, gifts. It was a tremendous kind deed that you did. It's very humbling in all honesty. I keep all the cards and letters. So for the past seven years, I think now, um, I have a big pile. And whenever I get afraid, I dive into the pile and read some letters and off I go back into the battle. So thanks for taking the time to do that. It means a lot. just want you to know that. Okay, verse 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Amen. Let's pray together, please. Fear not, I am with thee. O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will give thee aid. I'll strengthen and help thee and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. Father, we often cling to these words when life has turned south on us, when we're suffering, when we are afraid, when we are in heavy anguish or in heavy sin, and rightly so. And if we need them today, God, please give them to us. But this morning, I especially pray these words as we conclude this section on 1 Corinthians on personal evangelism, that you will strengthen and help us and cause us to stand upheld by your righteous, omnipotent hand. And, and like Paul, your apostle, because we know what it means to fear you, and because the love of Jesus Christ compels us, we would ask that we would be given the grace, all of us who need it, to be willing and consistent and effective soul winners, to actually see soul one in our personal evangelism. So help us then, God, not to lie to ourselves in these things. Help us just to be mindful that when we repent and turn to you, all the help that we will ever need is given because Jesus promised us this would be so. And so we thank you for these things. We look forward to the ways you're going to help us now as we work through these verses. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. So when a person comes to a living faith in Jesus Christ, they are made saints even though they remain sinners. When a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they will relate to God only through the life and death and resurrection, ascension and return of Jesus Christ. They will not relate to God through their own accomplishments because that is nothing more than pride. That sets us on a line oftentimes where we compete with one another about who's doing the most for Jesus. A living faith knows that it is Jesus it's what Jesus is and not what we are that gives rest 
and gives peace to their soul. Equally, though, because of the life-changing power of Jesus Christ and our union with him and our conversion, the Christian will, by way of grace, has a habit of life. And for many of us, admittedly, this is a slow-developing habit, but nevertheless, it is a habit of life that we will seek to please the Lord. So because of God's grace in Jesus, we'll want to bring attention to Christ and not to ourselves. And we'll do that by what we do and don't do, and we'll do that by what we say and what we don't say. And so, as time goes on, on, we'll show proper gratitude and proper reverence for Jesus Christ. We will, along with this, want to please Christ. I mean, it makes sense, right? Obey Jesus Christ. Do His revealed will given in the Scriptures. And we'll want to pray to Christ. And we'll want to praise Christ and walk humbly with others. And put yourself in a context like this because this is the new birth impulse that's given when grace comes. It's given when God changes a person's life. And finally, as one follows the one true Jesus Christ, as revealed to us again from the Scriptures, the Bible, they will be enabled by the Holy Spirit to become fishers of men and women. Soul winners. Okay, why is that so? Well, Jesus said this in the Gospels. He said that if we follow him, he will make us fishers of men. And Jesus is not a man that he would lie. So what we've been learning through 1 Corinthians 9 and 10 is that when the Christian is not very effective or willingly consistent, thus inactive in personal evangelism, they have to be humble enough and honest enough to believe the Bible, to believe 1 Corinthians 9 and 10, which in essence says, if we remain inactive or ineffective in these things, it is a moral problem. It is a holiness problem, which, verse 13, if your Bible is open, you'll see it there, God will help us meet. Because the basis of this moral problem is such that we have fashioned a God, this is verse 14, we fashion an idol in our mind, and this God in our mind is not like the one true God in the Bible, so we made up a pretend God who doesn't really care much about personal evangelism. Lip service, absolutely, but not, not life-altering. In other words, like the people of God that Paul uses in those verse, four verses of chapter 10 from the Old Testament, He tells us that that kind of Christian has an idol and they need to run from it. That's verse 14. Dear friends, flee from idolatry. Now, it's been said that those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. And 1 Corinthians 10 has been ripe with examples and warnings to the Christians who will just listen to Paul. And as a result of this, we've been kind of moving through this section purposely, very slowly. I made the decision probably about four weeks ago that we were going to take our time through this section. One, because I was thinking this is probably the first time for many of you that you've worked through this passage systematically and made the connection between personal holiness and personal evangelism and the temptations that come and the sins that come that get in the way. And the other reason why I determined to go through this very slowly is I was thinking that by and large as a congregation, my impression is that we really need God's help and personal evangelism. We need God's grace if we're going to do His revealed will in evangelism. If it's going to be a pattern of life and our primary impulse, second only to the public worship of Jesus Christ, right? What do Christians do? Well, they worship Jesus publicly and they tell people about Him personally. 
So our idols, if we have them, they're getting in the way. The Puritans would say, find out what a person daydreams about, and that is their idol. Find out what a person most cares about having, increasing, or keeping, and you found their idol. Idols can be things that we most fear losing. Idols can be things that we must have to make us feel like we're winning. Idols can make our prayers for ourselves and others the happy, healthy, successful prayers and not living for Jesus no matter what the cost prayers. Idols are, yes, Jesus, I'll do what you want, but you're going to have to do this for me. And whatever the this is, that is our idol. Which is why the Christian might have the gospel clear in their heads, but they won't witness because of what's going on in their hearts. So yeah, I mean, we know the games. This is the games that I play. I soothe my conscience, you know, by doing nice moral deeds. No gospel connection, but just being good and doing good. We're talking about church or about Jesus' love or how great prayer is. But I won't say enough to help people be saved. Which means I won't talk about death and, and sin and hell and salvation or love defined by Christ dying for sin. All of those things which were on the lips of Jesus when he walked this earth. Read the Gospels. And loved ones, unless we honestly identify our idols, asking God for power in our weakness to expose them and uproot them, unless we ask ourselves, are we becoming more winsome to the outsider, outsider, more appealing to people, unless then we grow in holiness, we will never, I promise you this, we will never consistently cross the street We'll never actually start the conversation. We'll never be able to keep it up telling people about Jesus Christ. I want you to think with me for a moment in light of those things. What made Jesus so attractive to those who knew themselves as sinners? And what made him so irritating to the self-righteous religious fakes of his day? Well, it was probably his holiness. His ability to set himself aside, speak the truth in love in such a way that irritated the fakes, but helped the sinners. There was no sinner who knew themselves a sinner in the gospel that had problems with Jesus. The only people that had problems with Jesus in the gospels is a self-righteous, religious person. So what God does here through Paul's pen in chapter 9 and 10 is he gives us the kind of clarity that we need. He says, these are your idols. These are the sins which get in the way of holiness, get in the way of evangelizing, which get in the way of winning and receiving the prize. Now, as you think about this, how kind is that of God to tell us exactly, right, exactly what the sins are that are getting in the way of you and I being effective, willing, personal evangelists? There could be more sins, we understand that, but in the context of a presumptuous, stubborn, apparently Christian Corinthian church, Paul says, here are your sins. Verse 7, do you see this in your Bible? We we walked through this last time. Idultery. What is idultery? Well, at its core, when we allow our preferences to determine God's character, we allow our preferences to determine God's will for us. Immorality, verse 8 Sex, mental or physical sex or union with other people outside the bonds of one man and one woman holy matrimony. Testing God, verse 9. This is the one who, being absolutely dissatisfied with God's providence in their life, has the audacity to make a scorecard about how God is doing good or bad for them. And in course, all these sins, 
As they abused God's grace, God's judgment came down on the people. And we learned that a few weeks ago. Most of them lost the privileges and blessings of grace, which was Paul's warning. If it happened in the Old Testament, God hasn't changed. It could happen in the New. Okay, that takes us to our first point then, the final sin. Verse 10, do you see it there? And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Now, as you think about this, it's kind of funny. If we were going to make a list of sins that get in the way of soul winning and would bring about the judgment of God, I suspect grumbling would probably not be one of them. I mean, the sex stuff, okay, we understand that. You know, those dirty little rascals, uh, serves them right. But grumbling, right? I mean, we all like to vent a bit. But as you think about it, there's nothing quite so unattractive and so difficult to be around than those who grumble or murmur. And the sin of grumbling or murmuring or complaining is the equivalent of getting into the face of Jesus Christ and letting him have it. Telling him how wrong he is and how disappointed you are in his care and his providence and his plans and you deserve better. Grumbling or murmuring as described in the Bible is to give audible expression to unjustified dissatisfaction towards God. Again, to give audible expression to unjustified dissatisfaction towards God. And Paul says the warning there in verses 6 and verse 11 and verse 12, he says, now be careful. Don't do this. Read your Bible. Look what happened to the people in the wilderness. Because whenever the people of God, we're talking about Christians now, whenever Christians grumble or complain against God, what they are saying is that we know better than you, God. We know better and you did it wrong. So we challenge God's goodness. We challenge God's love. We challenge His providence. We challenge His grace and His righteousness. Can we question God in things? Absolutely. Read the Psalms. David and others were constantly questioning God. We can question God. But it is never okay to grumble or murmur against God whether we do it by word or deed. So we have to ask the question, right? Have you and I, have we grumbled against God? I don't like the place where I live. I don't like the job that I hold. I don't like the circumstances that I've been set in. Have we done the if only? God, if only I had a little more money. If only I were a little taller, a little smaller, a little brighter. If only, God, you would allow these things that I want. Loved ones, contentment glorifies God. A complaining spirit does not. Listen to your Bible. Two places. This is Jude, verse 16. Jude is speaking to the enemies of Jesus Christ and they have somehow invaded the church. And this is what Jude says. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires and they boast about themselves. Philippians 2, 12. Paul is explaining how grumbling gets in the way of exalting Jesus Christ. It gets in the way of personal holiness and it gets in the way of personal evangelism. Listen. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill His good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing or complaining so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. In other words, it's the pagan who complains about God, who argues about God. And then Paul concludes, Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold out 
the word of life. I mean, that's pretty simple, right? When we are content with our circumstances, when we do not grumble against God, uh, it seems like the whole world, everything, sometimes something bad happens, they want to get mad at God and angry at God. When we don't do that, it makes us stand out for the right reasons in the right way. So I want you to see then that the grumbling, complaining spirit is in reality an anti-Christ spirit. It is a mind that is dissatisfied with God's power and his perfection, his providence, and his praiseworthiness. A mouth that has the audacity to say to God, you're doing it wrong and I don't like it. So what I want you to see, how out of all these four sins, starting in verse 7, think about those sins. They're, They're not good, right? They're horrible. Out of all those sins, the sin of grumbling is the one sin in the Old Testament that that brought God down, if you would, in a distinct way, a destroying angel. Now, I understand that it might be hard for the modern mind to think about destroying angels and devils and all that kind of stuff. And as time goes on, 13 and 14 of 1 Corinthians, we're going to get into that part of it. But what I want you to know is that the Bible says that the same angel who who slew the firstborn of Egypt who slew 70,000 men because of David's senses, who destroyed the entire Syrian army, that same angel, through a plague, destroyed the grumblers. And you would want to ask the question, God, why are you so serious about this? Well, the answer is because our contentment in God's rule and his providence in our lives brings God glory. And it makes us so different than the common person outside of Jesus Christ. Our grumbling, as we said, is so unattractive. It is wrong. And if one remains in this, Paul warns the church, it'll bring God's judgment. So yes, the people were grumbling against Moses, but in actual fact, since Moses was appointed by God, as ultimately all godly leaders are, they were grumbling against God himself. One last thing before we move on. Last week we read Numbers 11 verse 4 and it said um, the rabble with them began to crave other food and again the Israelites started wailing, grumbling and said if we only had meat to eat. Remember that little occasion when they were mad at God, dissatisfied with his provision? So the word rabble kind of just jumped out on the page to me and I did a word study. It's a Hebrew word. It's only used one time in the Old Testament, which is right here in Numbers 11, verse 4. And the word actually means mixed multitude. In essence, what they were saying, that there were people journeying along with the people of God. They weren't the people of God. They weren't converted, but they were with the people in the Exodus. And what they did, like yeast spreading through the dough, their rebellion to God spread itself in and through God's own people, if you can believe it. So God's own people became just like the pagans and they began to grumble against God, which means that grumbling is then the fallen fleshly mind. It opposes God. Yes, it might get some press, especially in a church, but it is evil. It is not to be done. And Paul says it perfectly in Philippians 4. He said, I've learned in every situation, rich, poor, happy, sad, sick, Well, I've learned in every situation to be content therein in them. That's a beautiful way to live. It's a theological way to live. It's the Christian way to live. Okay, so what keeps us 
from effective personal evangelism. Here's what God says. The sin of idolatry. Making our little puppet God to bow to our whims. Sexual immorality. Testing God. Putting God through our paces. Grumbling against God. His rule and His reign in our lives. I mean, it's not, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to say that we live in an age that is just completely dissatisfied. The best of health care, the, the best of food, the best of peace and safety, and people are constantly complaining, grumbling. We need to think that through. Second point, final sin, number one, final application, verse 11 and 12 there. Verse 11, these things happen to them as in examples and written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So what Paul says in verse 11 is the same thing he says in verse 6. And what he's saying is that those of us who have the privilege of living now between the entry of Jesus Christ into the world and his return in power and glory, the fulfillment of the ages, these warnings are for us. In other words, unless we persevere in holiness... We will fail. And we cannot persevere in holiness without continued watchfulness and effort to the very end of our lives. No slowing down at the finish line, right? Isn't that the worst way a runner can run? When he sees the finish line, he he pulls up, he slows down. You see, Paul knows that what we do now will matter, not only now, but equally for all eternity. Listen to your Bible, 1 Timothy 4.8. Godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Now, isn't that a mystery? What we do now matters. And in some mysterious way, it will matter for all eternity. And I know that those of you that are in the fight, you like that. That sounds fair, right? But those of us who are not in the fight, you might not like that. I like the fact that godliness has value in this life and in the life to come. So Paul's appeal to them is theological. It makes complete sense. If you, do you see this there in verse 12? If you think you're standing firm, in other words, if you think none of these sins, none of these warnings, none of these commands really apply to you and we're we're fine and we won't change, Paul says, be careful, watch out. That you do not fall. You mean fall like from grace? No. Not if you're truly in Christ. Okay, then Paul, it's no big deal. Right? You're just trying to scare us. What's all the fuss here? I mean, it's not going to make me not be a Christian. Then why all the fuss? We'll look at your Bible there in verses 2 and following. When God talks about his people through Paul's pen. They all passed through the sea. They all were baptized into Moses. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. Yet most reaped nothing but disaster. That's verse 5. God was not pleased with most. And they paid with their life. So they lived a useless, self-centered life. They brought God no glory. God judged them. And they are our example. That's what Paul is saying. Useless life. Self-centered life. They brought God no glory. God judged them, and they are our example. Verse 6, verse 11. Now hold your mind there, and let's remember the context in Corinth. The Corinthian church felt superior. They were self-satisfied. They were haughty, prideful, and complacent. They were inactive in the routine obedience of the Christian faith. 
They loved things that were impressive. We're going to learn that in 1 Corinthians 14. They loved impressive things. And they were endangering of going down the same path as the people of God in the Old Testament. So the principle that Paul is applying comes right from the Bible. It comes right from many places, one of which is Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. Here it is. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, wasn't that Peter? Remember Jesus' disciple? Peter thought himself so great that he boasted in front of Christ and he boasted in front of the other disciples, if you can believe this. He's like, listen, Jesus, even if everyone else leaves you, I will not leave you. I am your guide, Jesus. Me and you, Jesus. We've got our own thing going. Uh, we don't need anybody to tell us what it's all about. And what happens within a matter of hours? Peter's reduced to tears. There's a little girl, a servant girl. She has some questions for Peter. Peter can't answer them truthfully. And so while Peter is warming himself by the fire in the governor's palace, Peter proves himself to be a liar and Peter falls. Why did Peter fall? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. To the church at Laodicea, Jesus said, you say I am rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So I don't want us to miss Paul's appeal. Don't miss it as an individual. Don't miss it as a family. Don't miss it as a church. Pride goes before destruction. Pride makes us think we can call our own shots and everything will be fine. Pride makes us think that we can remain in our activity and still be okay. Pride makes us think that we no longer need to battle indwelling sin. But Paul's warning, pride brought a heavy judgment on God's own chosen people. And that appeal to that church is God's appeal to this church. If we think that we're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. I want you to listen. As Christians, the more self-confident we become, the less dependent we are. And the less dependent we are, the more careless that we grow. And the more careless that we grow, the less resistant to temptation we become. And the less resistant to temptation that we become, the more easily we are willing to sin. And the more easily we are willing to sin, we are less willing and we are less able to tell people about the life-changing love and power of Jesus Christ. So it is when we feel our strongest, when we feel the most secure, when we think that our morals are at the highest or our doctrine is at its best, Paul says, God says, we should be careful. We should be more on our guard and more dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you think about these things, how many churches, how many pastors, how many elders, how many members felt a strength and thought it was their own strength, and they said, well, yes, it's finally paying off all that praying and all that Bible study and all that memorization and all that serving and all that saving and all that no cable TV. It's finally paid off. And they felt strong. And then they fell. No more singing. No more preaching. No more serving. They've been removed from those privileges. Proverbs 5. Whenever I read it, it scares me to death. Proverbs 5.12, you will say, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. 
I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors. I've come to the brink of utter ruin and the assembly of God's people. Why did this happen? Why did it happen? Well, that person thought himself standing firm. And he wasn't. You know, the older I become, the more afraid I am of blowing this whole thing. That used to bother me. It doesn't bother me anymore. I'm glad that I still get afraid whenever my phone rings during the day. Because it could be one of you. I'm glad I'm that way. Thursday afternoon, in the middle of all this, my wife called me. I gave her the greeting. She gave me her voice. And the next words out of my mouth were, oh, thank God it's you. Why? Joe, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Now, what's Paul's final word to us then? Is the word that we're never going to make it? That there's no hope at all? That we have no assurance in these things? That we're always going to be terrible evangelists? We're always going to lose against sin and thus we'll be disqualified for the prize? That is not Paul's thinking at all. In fact, that line of thinking can be just the gloom of self-pity and self-despair becoming an expression of self-absorbed pride. In other words, I am so bad at this, God will never be able to change me. Come on now. It's the healthy self-expression and self-examination which is looking into the self. This is God-centered humility. Searching for those sins. Searching for those sins that displease God. He's our Father. We don't want to displease our Father. We want to get it right. So it's a healthy self-examination which when it finds sin, it names it. It names it. And casts then themselves And that sin, if you would, on the mercy of God. See, no pretending. No pretending. No yelling and screaming and shouting at the world. No, all sin is an inside job. It's not Hollywood that makes me a sinner. It's me that makes me a sinner. The reformers were very helpful when they told us that there's two forms of assurances in running the race as a Christian. The, the one form is that we rest in the work of Jesus Christ. That we are convinced that no matter how far we have to go in our pilgrimage on this earth, God will be faithful to work out sanctification in our lives. He will be faithful to the end. God will complete the work in us. It's that then that gives the Christian confidence when we have to stand up against temptations and Satan and the sin which can easily entangle us. That gives us joy in the midst of our discouragements. That gives us strength in the midst of our battles. That is not, however, a self-confidence. It is not resting on the fact that, quote, I'm doing well. It's not resting on the fact that, quote, I have plenty for now, even more for later. And it's not even, even, I've been doing my duty, so I'm good with God. No, the real question of assurance is when the world and the evil one condemns us, much of which is true, Our hearts do not condemn us because the grace of Jesus Christ is greater than our hearts. We're thinking like a Christian and all our confidence is in Jesus Christ alone. 
That's the one kind of assurance. The other kind of assurance is what was happening in Corinth. They were so confident in themselves. They were so confident in all their gifts and all their privileges. They were resting all their assurances, not on the cross, but on themselves. They were even resting, as we'll find out later on, they were even resting in the fact that there were kind of supernatural things happening in the church. Things that pagan religions could duplicate, by the way. So it wasn't the cross they relied on, but that kind of quasi-supernatural thoughts or large thoughts about themselves. We're so gifted, we're so great, look how great things are for us. And they were unconcerned about the danger. And so they became open to the attacks of the evil one. So that's verse 13 then. Paul assures them, if you listen, no temptation has seized you what is, except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he'll also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Now this is what you need to know. The root of that word temptation means testing and temptation. In fact, it has a dual meaning. It could mean temptation and it could mean testing and they're both kind of quantified together. So this makes sense because Paul is warning the Corinthians. This fits the context, right? He's telling them, you are facing some powerful testings just like the people of God in Exodus. Are you going to go through this testing with a keener, tougher fight on sin? Will you endure to the end or will you let the sin overcome you? And will you be punished like them? If God's people in the past had so much blessing and yet it ended terribly for them, do not think, New Testament Christian, you have immunity to this because you don't. And you see the Bible then doesn't monkey around. It says it straight up. When we are tempted, the temptation then comes as a test. Our heart motives and our manners are being exposed. Well, who says that? Well, listen to your Bible, James 1.14. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and are enticed. You get that? It's not what's happening out there that tempts us. It's what's happening in here. That's what's tempting us. Then after the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. In other words, all our sin is an inside job. So, so Paul says, there is a process that leads to life and the prize. And James says, there's a process that leads to judgment and to death. Every one of our inner cravings will either be killed or they will be completed. We either will act upon sin or we will resist it. There's no middle ground. Every day, each of us face thousands of temptations. There is no magic formula to beat them. It is a daily choice. God is the strength behind our success. There's no special formulas. There's no funny little tricks. There's no special books to read. There's only one thing we can do. Run. That's verse 14. Run from sin with God's power. Why can we run? God is faithful. Verse 13. God is faithful. God is faithful. So don't let your minds wander. Don't let your eyes settle. Don't let your hearts to conceive evil things. Don't let your imagination to linger. Get out. Verse 14. Flee. This is not rocket science. Flee. Some of you know this little saying. 
Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Oh, but pastor says the person, you don't really live in the real world. You don't really know how hard it is out there. If only you knew how much I lived in the real world. So the person says, there's just too much out there. There's too much headwind. The winds of temptation, they blow to and fro. There's evil all over the place. It's just too hard. So the story goes that the pastor takes the person to the dock and he points the person to all the sailing boats. Some boats are going east. Some boats are going west. They're all blown by the same wind. And so the pastor says this. One ship sails east and another west by the self-same winds that blow. Tis the set of the sails and not the gales that tells the way we go. So this morning, none of us have it any worse when it comes to temptation. And it's the set of our sails in whatever years we have left on this planet which will determine whether we enter into sin or fight sin and win the prize. It will determine if we find the way of escape that God has made. That's the promise, right? There's a way out. It will determine if we'll finally be effective, productive, in personal holiness, which then lends itself to personal evangelism. Does it not do you well to think, since temptation is common to us all, then when we're up against it, whatever it is that we're up against, that somewhere in the world, there's somebody, another Christian, being tempted in the same way, and they got through it. Isn't that great? Isn't that encouraging? They did it with God's help. And we could too. God is faithful. Fight the good fight. It's the only fight that really matters. A long time ago when I was a kid, we sang this song. I'm just going to read one verse to you. Yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. Each victory will help you, some other to win. Fight man, manfully onward, dark passions subdue. Look ever to Jesus. He'll carry you through. I was thinking this week when I was smaller, younger, and there was some great goal that I wanted to achieve. I'd get out my notebook, pencils, write it down, get some books to help me. Go, Joe, go. It's a rite of passage for a kid, isn't it? Same intensity, same fight for indwelling sin that keeps us from the prize. Loved ones, there is a connection between personal holiness and our effectiveness in personal evangelism. Thank you for your attention. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for the gospel. 
It reminds us the truth that it is what Jesus is and not what we are that gives final rest and peace to our soul. At the same time, we thank you for the demands of the gospel, call to holiness, call to action, so to set aside our life for the sake of the gospel. Since life on earth is fleeting and life in heaven is eternal, and since judgment is real, it makes all the sense in the world. Oh God, please help us. Please help us to win for Jesus' sake. Amen.